As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Geopolitics is complicated, and quite often when you're in a position of power, the choices in front of you are never good or bad or right or wrong, just A and B. Both have pros, both have cons, both have risks, and neither is perfect. A choice like this is currently sitting on the desk of the US State Department. You see, the Syrian conflict is now 11 years old, and the US is starting to ask, well, what is the end goal here? This civil war in Syria began in 2011 and 2012 as part of the Arab Spring, where protesters marched against the dictator Bashar al-Assad, son of the previous dictator, and the regime responded with brutal force. What began in those streets was a horrifying civil war going on to be fueled by many outside nations, including Russia, Saudi Arabia, the US, Iran, Turkey, and many others. In the US, during the early days of the Arab Spring, there was hopes of seeing democracies popping up all over the Middle East, that real change might be in the air. And with this optimism, the US threw its hat in the ring, desperate not to let this fleeting moment in history pass them by. But as usual with geopolitics, things became complicated. The Syrian democratic forces, the rebels against the al-Assad government, who many had pinned their hopes of, quickly morphed into an Islamic movement, co-opted by more radical Gulf state-funded groups, and fighting for similar ideals that the US was fighting directly against elsewhere. So the US had to make a choice, put more weight behind them and fund what could be the next extremist group, or abandon the plans for changing the country and throw these groups at the mercy of a cornered Bashar al-Assad. Again, a tough choice, but there are even worse ones to come. Then out of the chaos in Syria came ISIS, the new most virulent terrorist group the US had seen for a long time coming onto the scene very quickly and taking over half of Iraq and Syria, encouraging terrorist groups around the world and becoming a household name. The US at this point is still sweeping up the pieces in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's no way the US population is keen to go for a full invasion of Syria without an exit strategy. So the US have another tough choice. Let ISIS grow and continue to threaten the stability of the region, or throw their support behind the people actually shooting at them. Aside that, yes, did include US friends, the Kurds, but also put them into bed with anti-ISIS forces like Assad, Russia, Shia militias, and Iran. Again, not good, not bad, just A and B. The US decided to embrace its odd bedfellows, and as we know, ISIS, for the most part, were territorially crushed, all whilst the US managed to avoid a full Iraq-level invasion of the country. What that option created, though, was a green light for other nations that are not necessarily aligned with US goals to become the rudders for Syria's future. As it stands today, Syria is divided into five zones. One, the majority zone, is the government-controlled areas. Areas that are once again under the thumb of Bashar al-Assad. Areas that are slowly starting to gain back their stability, 
But after all these years of conflict and fighting, does the US really want to hand control back over to Assad again? The second area is the rebel areas, and these rebel movements which once had US support now stand as a hodgepodge of everyone from unemployed finders to Sunni extremists with no coherent strategy, leadership or government. Almost everyone in Washington knows that even if they were to provide them all of the air support in the world and pave a path for these groups to take over Damascus, would this leadership be a dramatic improvement for regional stability than the current one? The third is the Northeast, which is the Kurdish-held areas, trusty US allies that have fought as the tip of the US spear for decades now. But every single day you support them is a day you weaken Washington's ties between Ankara, Damascus, and Baghdad. Washington knows that when they leave, the Turks and the Syrians will carry out their revenge for this. So should the US stay in Syria forever to prevent this ever happening, or abandon one of their last true friends in the region? The fourth is the Turkish territories, Washington's important NATO ally, who's also one of the biggest sources of gasoline on this open fire. And the last is the remnants of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Once again, it's not a good or a bad problem. It's not a right or a wrong problem. It's just an A and a B. The US now needs to figure out whether they should pick a side here, whether more US involvement will simply prolong the war, or will it actually bring it to a conclusion? Is it time that Washington just cuts its losses and accepts that Assad is the government in Syria, and admit that millions of dead and displaced have all been for very little gain for the country? This is the question we'll be discussing today. What is the future for Syria, and is there any good options left on the table here? And to talk us through these options, we turn to our first guest. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Part 1. From Bad to Worse Well, Syria's gone through a brutal civil war in the last 10 years. And, and to a certain degree, that's because when it was created... Uh, out of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire at the end of World War I, when the Ottoman Empire was destroyed. At the Paris Peace Conference, 1919, foreign powers drew up boundaries. And inside Syria were captured different people who didn't necessarily want to live together. And this turned very rapidly into a dictatorship, a military dictatorship, as did Iraq and a number of other countries in the Middle East. And there's been a very uncomfortable and repressive regime that has kept these people together. But this system collapsed and we saw the outbreak of a very difficult and tough civil war. 
the Alawites, a minority in Syria, about 12% of the population, religious community in Syria, had captured largely the state, the security state, <clears throat> and much of the power in Syria. The Sunni Arabs form a majority of the country, 70%. And the rebellion, largely after the shooting started, the rebellion became one of Sunni Arabs against the other groups in Syria, whether they were Christians, Druze, Alawites, Kurds, and uh, they were unsuccessful in their bid to overturn the government. Uh, the, the minorities were frightened of being ethnically cleansed and they held on for all they were worth. And that's why the killing went up so high. Another reason why the death rates were so high and destruction was so high is that external powers jumped into the civil war. They had a lot at stake or they felt they did. And they poured in tens of billions of dollars worth of arms, training and so forth to the first the, the Arab opposition and then with the Kurds. And this led to a much prolonged war and a much more uh, devastating war for everybody. And it ended up that Assad remains in power in 70% of the country. It didn't succeed in overturning him in large measure because the Americans in the West became spooked by the opposition, which became increasingly Islamist, radical, and it lost its support. That's why the revolution collapsed in large measure and Russia stepped in on the side of Assad and he won. And so we're back in a sense to where we were at the beginning of this uprising, but the country is pulverized. Almost 50% of the people were displaced at some point, many internally, but 6 million left the country at least, and a half a million dead. And today about 90%, 80 to 90% of the people live uh, in poverty. So it's a very grim picture and that's the way it is. Joshua Landis is the head of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma, as well as a well-published expert when it comes to Syria and its ongoing civil war. He's also the head of the website Syria Comment, giving up-to-date analysis and content on the situation in Syria today. We're thrilled to have him on the show. <clears throat> I don't want to paint a sim overly simplistic picture of this just being a, a fight amongst religious communities. It's not. It's also class warfare. Many of the upper class Sunni Arabs in the cities remain loyal. Uh, so do the businessmen. Cities like Aleppo, the internal, the center of the city where the wealthier middle class lived, did not want this revolution. It, it was a, it was overtaken by much poor people on the fringes who, um, who joined the rebellion. So it's both an economic struggle, it's a regional struggle, and it's, it, it's a struggle between religious communities over the identity of the nation and who's going to rule, whether, so that's, that's um, is Assad worse than his father? It's hard to, it's hard to say. The, the system was set in place by the father. The son has tried to perpetuate it. I don't think he's worse or better than his father. He's not as smart and calculating as his father. His father came up uh, through the ranks and was much better at keeping various communities inside the tent and not letting them go out. And, and most importantly, the father Assad was very good at playing regional politics. He kept America sweet. In other words, America always disliked Assad because he was pro-Iranian. He was a Baathist. He was uh, a dictator and he was pro-Russian. 
sitting there next to Israel, which is pro-American, democratic, and so forth. And the two fought over territory, the Golan Heights, the Palestinian issue. So it was quite natural that Syria would lean towards the Russians and America was its enemy. But Assad, the father, always found a way to keep America from breaking its relations with Syria entirely. And so that's something that the son could not do and did fail to do. And it meant that the United States really turned against him and his family and tried to overthrow him. And that brought the country to its knees. The conventional wisdom around this subject is that the conflict here began when Arab Spring protesters were met with harsh crackdowns. And then the protests moved from calls for better rights to an overthrow of the government. Do you think this war broke out just because of the Arab Spring? Or is this something that had been brewing for Syria for decades now? Well, I think it's all of the above. Um, Syria <clears throat> was a dictatorship, a military dictatorship, and it had a quite a brutal security system. As long as people behaved, they could go about their daily business, but they had to behave. And there was what we'd call an authoritarian bargain, if you will, or this is what the this political science literature calls it, which is that most of these Arab dictatorships offered jobs, subsidies, subsidized food and uh, petroleum, you know, heating oil and so forth, and security in exchange for the people giving up their political voice. That was the basic idea. Increasingly, Syria was going bankrupt. It was unable to provide the subsidies. It, um, it, the class situation was becoming more and more uh, a bigger income gap. There had been a terrible drought for four years. The pressures were immense on Syrian society. Once Tunisia lit up, then Libya and Egypt and so forth, it wasn't long before people in Syria began to think, we, we've got to jump on this bandwagon. This is a opportunity to get rid of this regime, which was stifling. They tried to do it. They found a lot of international support and it turned into this long and bloody civil war. Now, many people will say this is about democracy. And I, I imagine that uh, um, in your other segments, you'll, you'll, you'll get that. And there was clearly a call for reform from every sector of Syrian society, whether they were Alawites, minorities, Sunni Arabs, upper class, lower class, everybody wanted to see change. But once the violence began and the shooting began, people fell back into their communities. And what we saw with the, the, the opposition was that very quickly groups like Al-Qaeda and then later ISIS, but many other militias that were Islamists were not for democracy. Yes, there was a call for democracy from an enlightened uh, middle-class Syrian elite, but they didn't, aren't the people who were gonna carry guns. And they are perhaps, uh, I don't know, 10, 15% at the top of society. But once it became a real civil war, very quickly, the non-Democrats took over. And we can see that in places like Idlib province in the Northwest of the country, which is dominated by the remains of the uh, Syrian opposition militias. There is no democracy. It's a very strict Islamic rule where women have to wear hijab and, and um, there's no, you know, opponents of, of al-Jolani, the head of this regime there, uh, get thrown to jail routinely. So that's the same as with other militia groups in the, in the Turkish dominated parts of northern Aleppo province, which is still opposition. You know, but a lot of people are going to say it's democracy against tyranny. And it's, it's just not that simple, unfortunately which is 
which is why I guess a lot of the Arab Spring has, has really turned out into this rather unhappy uh, situation where you've got much more tyranny and much less security than you did 10 years ago. One of the things a lot of the locals we spoke to for this episode told us was that one of the main reasons opposition forces were able to tank over a lot of these areas so quickly is that they'd be frankly been neglected by Damascus for so long now that as bad as ISIS was, for some people, ISIS was the first time that the power had been on for the majority of the day. Do you think these factors and the neglect from Damascus is how ISIS and AQ were able to so quickly grow from just a few small pockets to effectively controlling half of Iraq and Syria at their peak? It's very true that the northeast, the tribal areas of Syria, which also have a lot of oil and good agriculture, had been underserved by the regime, which brought the resources to the capital. And the wealth was largely in the capital cities and the four major cities and particularly Damascus. So they had, you know, their grievances were real. The drought and climate change, which has been hammering Syria, and and we have to remember that Syria had the the worst drought leading up to the uh, Arab Spring, the worst drought in a hundred years. So it was a very bad situation. The government didn't know how to deal with it. The government was almost bankrupt because its oil resources had been diminishing dramatically. It was subsidizing all kinds of goods. The population was expanding rapidly and it couldn't pay for this. This this cranky centralized rule, quasi-socialist system just wasn't working. And it wasn't working for countries right across the Middle East, uh, which is one of the, I think, an important source of these uprisings. The sparks were there. Did ISIS serve people better? Um, You know, I think in some ways you have to look at ISIS as trying to create a state for Sunni Arabs out of the Sunni regions of Iraq and Syria and Eastern Syria, particularly the tribal regions. If you look at the map of the territory that ISIS conquered, and it's almost the size of Great Britain, it included all these Sunni areas, tribal areas that had been uh, forgotten and discriminated against by Shiite dominated regimes, one in Baghdad and the other in Damascus. And so in a sense, you can see this in an ethno, as an ethnic warfare of trying to create a nation state for Sunni Arabs. And the Shiites were trying to hang on to as much as they could. And they owned the capitals, both in Baghdad and in Damascus. And so in that sense, it is this war that takes on these national, this national element to it. Of course, it's, it's extremely Islamist, and it, and it became, um, it cut across those lines very deeply. And ultimately, the United States, horrified by ISIS's ideology and its anti-borders, its attempt to just collapse the borders of the Middle East, turned against ISIS by, you know, helping Baghdad and Maliki, a very Shiite, very chauvinistic leader in Baghdad, destroy ISIS. At the same time that Russia was helping Assad, a, an Alawite, which is a Shiite offshoot, destroy ISIS in Syria. And, uh, and so the United States and Russia, in a sense, 
were allies in this effort to destroy Islamic extremism. And, um, and that helped both the Shiites of Iraq and the Shiites of the United States. And even though the United States claimed to be against Assad, it was quite clear that fairly early on, by 2013, Washington did not want the fall of Assad. They wanted to help the opposition enough to pressure Assad to the negotiating table, but not to have him fall. There are plenty of interviews with the deputy head of the CIA in 2013, uh, with Brennan, the CIA chief in 2015, saying we don't want Assad to fall because ISIS or Al-Qaeda are likely to take Damascus and that would be a disaster. What we do want is the opposition to be strong enough to force Assad to the table. Russia's close relationship with Syria greatly predates the civil war, and Damascus has always had pretty close ties with Moscow for a very long time. Why does Russia have this long-standing relationship with Syria? What are they hoping to get from this? Uh, because of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It, it really is because of that. Uh, after World War II, we see a very clear moment when Syria went towards Russia, and, it, and they did it. Um, they wanted to be with America. And the United States, the ambassadors of the Middle East all met in Cyprus in 1945 at the end of the war. And they agreed that the two countries that the United States should focus on are Saudi Arabia, where the oil was, and Syria, because the French were being driven out and it was going to come up for free. In a sense, they, America wouldn't alienate either its British allies or France by moving into Syria. And the pipelines from Saudi Arabia could go through Syria to the ports on the Mediterranean to export the oil. And, and America set out plans to help rebuild the Syrian army and to send them arms and to send a, a mission of military experts to train them and so forth. But then the war in Palestine is about to break out in 1947 and you get the Secretary of State Marshall of the Marshall Plan writes a memo to Damascus and the, 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 the minister there, the American minister, and says, you know, we can't go ahead with any of these military plans because there's going to be war between Israel and the Arabs and or the Jews and the Arabs, the Jews in Palestine. And Congress won't support it. We're not going to support it. And we're just not going to send any arms or a military mission to Damascus. The moment Damascus hears this, um, they say, we've got to go to the Russians and get arms. Otherwise, we're just going to be sitting ducks here. And um, the Palestinians will get pushed out. And so they begin to flirt with Russia already in 1947-8. Um, they don't quite move then, but it's, it's clear what's going to happen. America chooses Israel and Russia gets the weaker of the two, Syria. And that's the way it's been ever since, really. An issue we're going to be talking about a lot later on the piece will be the Kurdish territories in the north of Syria. If you aren't aware, the Kurdish are a group of people in the Middle East who are based in the region of Kurdistan, a territory spread between Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Armenia, but they have no official state. The Turks and Iraqis over the years have been cracking down on their Kurdish populations in brutal, brutal ways. But what has Damascus's position been towards the Kurds over the years? The Alawites who dominate the government, Assad is an Alawite, 12% of the population. Kurds are 10% of the population. But Damascus, in many ways, runs a minority strategy in Syria. And that is to tell all the minorities, if the Sunni Arabs take over, particularly the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood, who are the dominant 
military force amongst the Sunni Arabs, you're going to get ethnically cleansed and you're going to be marginalized. Uh, at, at, you know, at the best, you'll be marginalized. At the worst, you'll be ethnically cleansed from your home. So stick with me, even if you don't like me. And that's worked, that strategy. Now, the Kurds are part of this because the Kurds live up in the northeast of Syria, where they have a majority in certain districts. And they share that area with the Arab tribes, Arab tribes that were first taken over by Al Qaeda in 2013. And then 2014, ISIS uh, conquered this whole area and took it from Al Qaeda. The tension is between the Arab tribes and the Kurds up there in the Northeast of who's going to dominate. And so Assad has always favored the Kurds because they're a minority and they uh, are anxious about a takeover from the same Sunni Arabs, uh, Muslim extremists that Assad is worried about. So they've had a tacit understanding and it was the United States, it was Syria and Assad who helped the uh, Ocalan, the head of the PKK, I, I'm getting into the weeds here a little bit, but the, the Kurds who were the most nationalist and were being persecuted in Turkey, uh, this is the the Turkish Workers' Party, PKK, of which the dominant Kurdish party in Syria today is an offspring of that, and America is allied with them today. But they were traditionally allied with Assad. And Assad gave Ocalan an office in Damascus, and he helped build him up, and he let him train his soldiers in order to annoy Turkey, because Turkey was taking Syria's water and damming up, building 28 dams on the Euphrates River and so forth. And so it was a tit-for-tat leverage situation where Damascus was using the Kurds against the Arab tribes, against Turkey. Today, it's America that's doing that exact same strategy. It's using the Kurds against Turkey and against Assad by promising them not national independence, but autonomy. And it's really independence today because the Kurds don't rely on Damascus. They have their own military and America protects them. So they have a quasi-independence. How long that will last? is as long as America stays there. The moment America pulls out and takes its air force away, they're going to be fall under Damascus's power or Turkey is going to come in and pulverize them. So uh, they're there as long as America's there. Well, do you think the Americans are looking to be there for the long term? Or are we going to see another pullout from this administration or even the next one? Right now, it looks like it. It, it looks like Turkey has ambitions, I think territorial ambitions in Syria. Erdogan certainly does. The opposition is saying that they will pull out if they get to power. But we can't see what how that would happen in Turkey in the short term. Turkey is, is there for a long, the long haul, possibly, because they're a neighbor and they could acquire the territory. And, and in 1938-9, they, they took a big hunk of Syria, what's called the Hatay district of Syria today. It's it's it was over 50% Arab at the time, but it had Turks in it as well. It was one of these border regions. And um, it's been largely Turkified today. But Turkey could do that to these northern Aleppo and Idlib provinces. Any rate, but the United States, I believe, is going to pull out because what's it doing in Syria and what can it really achieve? It, it is sentimentally very attached to the Kurds. It's going to be very damaging to whichever president does pull out in the same way that it was damaging pulling out of Afghanistan. Even though I think almost every American thinks it's time to get out of Afghanistan, it was very painful to watch the people that we've bolstered for the last you know, two decades collapse and 
the Taliban take over again. And that was very painful to see what, what all those people who depended on the United States, who we've been feeding and helping to build the new Afghanistan, completely uh, you know, flee overnight. And the same thing will happen in the Kurdistan, Kurdish regions, once the United States pulls out, because they don't have an air force. They can't stand up an army against either the Syrian army or the Turkish army. There's only 2 million Kurds in Syria. They're part of the poorest region. They're just getting universities built in their region. It doesn't have the infrastructure for a nation. And America is there today for leverage against Assad. But that leverage isn't going to change the political makeup of Syria. We're not going to build democracy in Syria. All those dreams that um, lured the United States into Syria, I think have turned out to be um, foolish dreams that have caused great suffering in Syria and have achieved very little. So I think the United States will recognize that at some point and then go away. Not under Biden, because he's already taken a big hit from pulling out of Afghanistan, but future president will do it. They might kick it down the road for some time as they did with Afghanistan, because who wants to be the president when you pull out? It's not very expensive staying there and helping the Kurds today, but increasingly it's becoming more dysfunctional because the Arab tribes are against the Kurds and the Turks and the Syrians are all inciting people to fight each other there and it doesn't have many resources. So I think the United States will pull out of that region. Assad will take it back mostly and come to an agreement with Turkey how to not allow the Kurds to do cross-border raids and upset the Turkish apple cart. If the Americans know that Assad is going to remain in power and the opposition have almost no hope of taking over and governing united Syria, why is the US still refusing to recognize and work with the government in Damascus? What are they waiting for to officially change the US policy towards Syria? So America's strategy, I think, is counterproductive, both for counterterrorism, for refugees, for security in the region. And I think America will eventually um, realize that because its allies, the Arabs, and then Europeans will pressure America to change their policy. Why? Because Europeans don't want more Syrian refugees and the Arabs don't want more impoverishment. Countries like Jordan, Iraq, they need trade with Syria. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. There's a running joke in geopolitics. The answer to every question in this field is, well, it's complicated. And Syria is a prime example of this. The country is currently in the middle of a five-way civil war. And now with Russia, the US, the Gulf states, Turkey, Iran, and Israel all involved in the conflict as well. But how is it that we can have all of these countries involved, yet still the battlefield looks remarkably similar to a few years ago, once the backbone of ISIS was broken? How is it that the deaths still rack up, but not a lot changes on the ground? Well, to talk about that, we turn to our second guest. 
Part two, the hospital pass. Well, it's hard to see how you can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, certainly with the current government. I mean, Bashar Assad managed to maintain control in a war that probably killed, you know, 400,000, 500,000 people. Estimates vary. You know, he didn't kill all those people. This is what happens when you have a low tech, you know, bloody civil war that goes on for a decade. Nevertheless, to how one brings people together and reconstitutes a country and has reconstruction, brings money in. I mean, all of this is very hard to do under the best of circumstances. But in practice, the conflict isn't over because the U.S. is still involved. We'd love to see Bashar Assad go, even though, frankly, the U.S. has no way to try to push him out. But the U.S. is trying to hamper operations, his access, for example, to oil fields, as well as supporting uh, Syrian Kurdish forces inhibiting the Iranian role. But you also have Iranians, you have Turkish forces, you have Russians all involved. Israel is involved kind of over the border with bombings. Uh, you still have uh, an area, Idlib, that is uh, supported by Turkey that has jihadists and others, uh, insurgents. You know, so today, trying to bring in you know people to reconstruct and to kind of have a a united government of some sort that could do that is virtually unimaginable. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute specializing in foreign policy. He also worked as the special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and as the editor of the Inquiry magazine. He joins us today. Yeah, unfortunately, getting rid of Assad doesn't necessarily get you to democratic governance. I mean, number one, you know, I mean, he's part of you know, his father was uh, was dictator. He took over because his older brother was killed in a car accident. His older brother was supposed to be the successor. And this is not in a sense a personal dictatorship or even so much a family one as a movement, as a, a, a faith community, as a, a group. A, I mean, it's, he's an Alawite. It's a, it's a minority religion. So he surrounded himself with an awful lot of Alawites. Uh, there's also a sense that during this conflict that other religious minorities feeling threatened by jihadists, they saw what happened in Iraq, they didn't like how that movie ended, they didn't want to have it happen in Syria. So you find Christians and others who tended to be somewhat more supportive of him. Uh, and you know, beyond that, uh, I mean, you you have the, the normal breaks, uh, you have you know, Druze community, you have Sunni and Shia, you have jihadists active as well as democratic activists. There's no obvious one person you could put up. And the attempts to bring together kind of a democratic conference or conference to promote a democratic outcome in the past has always started with the desire to get rid of Bashar Assad. The problem is if he's survived 10 years of war, why will he step aside today? So if you can't get rid of him, you're not even into the position of finding somebody else. And the only way you know, to ultimately get somebody else would presumably be an election. But you look at Syria today, it's hard to see how you do that. What are the parties? How do you bring people together? So you probably need some reconstruction to start. You probably have to engage him to some degree in that process and give him an off-ramp, which he can leave and be secure without facing war crimes trials. And then you have to find some a creation of more than just a few democratic activists, NGOs, and others to try to start putting together a community there that could uh, reconstitute a nation. Is there any country out there, though, who would be willing to actually put up that amount of effort and capital to even attempt to try and do that, though? Well, the interesting question would be whether the Gulf monarchies would be willing to do so. 
Early in the war, they hoped to get rid of Bashar Assad. At uh, some point, they all recognized that wasn't going to happen. And what we see today is a greater willingness of them to engage despite U.S. disapproval. You know, the uh, Jordanian uh, you know, monarch, King Hussein, put in a phone call to Assad back in October, the first time in years that they had had any contact. The uh, Saudi uh, or, or the uh, United Arab Emirates, a foreign minister, made a visit uh, in November, you know, suggesting that there's at least uh, a, a communication is going to be opening, that they recognize he's there, he's in charge. So there, I think there is a hope, at least, that you might be able to get them involved as an alternative to Iran and Russia. There is a meeting of the Arab League coming up very soon, where Syria is quite sure to come up as a subject. The US is still putting pressure on nations like Saudi Arabia and Qatar to continue to not recognize the Assad government. Is there something the US is actually holding out for? Do they think that their opposition may undergo some dramatic reforms and change? Or are they continuing this policy because it's simply too politically damaging to go back on their own Assad policy? Well, it's certainly possible that the U.S. might decide that uh, obstruction of Arab efforts is not helpful. It's going to be hard to change U.S. policy. Congress passed the Caesar uh, sanctions, and the U.S. is you know, kind of sanction-happy. I mean, it, you, know, you look at uh, you know, previous administrations, Obama and certainly the Trump administration, I mean, you, know, you have sanctions on, of course, uh, you know, Cuba, increased sanctions on Venezuela, increased sanctions on Iran, increased sanctions on... Uh, you know, in North Korea, you know, that, and with generally very little positive impact, that is, we've discovered, I think, that it's very hard to force governments to make political changes that they view as inimical to their fundamental interests just because of economic sanctions, and ultimately trying to start, you know, change the, a dictator's position by starving his population also just doesn't seem to work. Um, but it's still hard for Washington to get that lesson, and I think an administration might be hesitant getting into a fight with Congress, which passed them. And again, I don't see a way out of this without engagement like that. Bashar Assad survived a decade of war. He's not going to quit because of economic sanctions today. We've got to find another strategy, and at least a start of that strategy would be to suggest let Arab countries go in there, have discussions, see what might be possible, and then that could lead to something else, including involvement of the United States. With this war having gone on so long, Biden is taking over as the third administration to try and solve this problem, being the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations now. How would you sum up the different tacks these administrations have taken toward the Syria problem? There's a lot of you know, question about uh, the impact of American policy. When the U.S. early on declared that he should be overthrown, you know, the danger there is that, number one, it made it more likely that he was going to fight hard. Why should he negotiate if the U.S. position was he had to go and if the U.S. played a major role in that? And it may also have hardened the position of insurgents to say, why should we try to get a political outcome if the U.S. is going to make sure he goes? So I think that probably was had a problem there. But the U.S. was never going to put troops in. I mean, people who imagined an American military commitment in Syria you know, after having gotten out of the disaster in Iraq, I mean, that was just never going to happen. So, of course, the U.S. relied on indirect means, I mean, in terms of trying to train uh, you know, so-called moderate uh, you know, and, and kind of democratic-oriented insurgents. I mean, you know, spent a half billion dollars and trained something like 50 or 60, and I mean, most of them were promptly you know, captured or disabled. 
Um, you know, I mean, that didn't turn out very well. You know, it put some weapons in. Uh, it, uh, you know, it, it, it was not willing to go in frontally. And then at, near the end, it decided to try the sanctions route. None of those are going to be effective at changing the outcome of the war. You had American allies. I mean, the Gulf countries uh, put a lot of money into, unfortunately, tended to be more you know, radical groups. Turkey tended to be involved in the opposite side. That is, they early on at least seemed to be rather friendly with ISIS and allowed a lot of transit across the border, et cetera. And then the problem for the U.S., the focus on ISIS, which is the one part of the conflict that worked well, is the U.S. worked with the Kurdish, the Syrian Kurdish forces, but the Syrian Kurdish forces were at variance with the Turks. So you know, that proved to be a problem in the Trump administration, where Turkey actually invaded a couple of times and took over territory as a buffer and installed its own Syrian forces and has tended to, you know, has been at least accused of a lot of atrocities, you know, there against a Kurdish, uh, you know, population. I mean, so the, the challenge was that the Obama administration goes into this with multiple objectives. We want to get rid of Assad, but of course, Assad is the strongest single force conceivably against ISIS, and we also want to get rid of ISIS. So, so this is a policy that bled over then into Trump, where we have these multiple objectives. We don't want the Russians there. We don't want the Iranians there. We want to get rid of Assad. We, you know, we'd like the Turks to help us, but they're actually hurting us. We want to work with the Kurds who, you know, can't work with the Turks. And uh, it, this, the Russians come in and have one simple objective: save Assad. And it, basically, that was the objective of Iran. I mean, Iran, I think, you know, beyond that was hoping to do this, among other things, to keep, you know, kind of a way open into Lebanon with Hezbollah and to put pressure on Israel. But uh, their focus is fairly simple. We just want to save Assad. Uh, the Biden administration at the moment just seems to be in that place and not doing anything new. That is, they haven't changed sanctions. They've talked about it sounds like they plan on keeping U.S. forces there. There are about 900 Americans there. I mean, the focus is on helping the Kurds and also kind of creating a blocking force as, a point, as opposed to being actively involved in fighting other than, for example, going in in the recent case of taking out the ISIS head. Uh, but I think for the Biden administration, this is a sideshow. For Obama, it was a major initiative. For Trump, he was kind of stuck with it as it kind of transitioned down. He talked about pulling U.S. forces out, and uh, you know everybody around him talked him out of it, essentially. Biden said he's probably going to keep the forces there, but he doesn't see this as being a major initiative. What's worse, a longer, meat-grinder-like conflict that churns through thousands of people and displaces millions more? upending an entire country, or giving a free pass to a dictator who used chemical weapons on his people, a beacon to other dictators that the US has limited appetite for playing policemen in the Middle East these days. It's a very tough decision to make, and one that was put upon our next guest. Part 3. Empty Threats and Bad Bets I don't think that it was inevitable that the Americans would get involved. That was a conscious policy choice made uh, by the United States. I think by contrast, Turkish intervention was almost a certainty once the Syrian armed forces lost control of areas in the Kurdish regions of northern Syria. 
Turkey has a long-term interest, a national interest, uh, from Ankara's perspective, of not seeing a Kurdish independent political entity arise in northern Syria. They worry very much about Turkish territorial integrity should such a Kurdish state uh, come to pass, should it be established. And so Turkish intervention, I think, was a certainty. And with that Turkish intervention, almost a certainty that some Arab states, Qatar, for example, uh, or the Saudis would also get involved. Um, the American intervention did not prompt regional states to intervene. They already had intervened before the Americans did. Robert Ford is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and a professor at Yale University. He was also the U.S. ambassador to Syria during the Obama administration, as well as being the former ambassador to Iraq and Algeria. Robert was crucial in many of the decisions that shaped the U.S. response in Syria during the early stages of this war. And we are thrilled to have him join us today. Well, I don't think the Israelis plan to leave at all. They've already formally annexed the Golan Heights and made it uh, part of the state of Israel, although the international community has not recognized that action yet. Uh, but I, in any case, I don't think uh, Jerusalem intends to withdraw from the Golan Heights under any scenario. Uh, by contrast, uh, the Turkish army, which is occupying parts of northern and in particular northeastern Syria, it's not certain to me that they would stay there forever, but they have two issues. Uh, the most important issue is the Syrian Kurdish issue I mentioned, and they will want some kind of guarantees and some kind of um, clear pathway that will reassure them there will not be an independent Kurdish entity in northern Syria. That's one issue, is how to manage that Kurdish issue for Turkey. Um, then the second one is uh, the fate of approximately 2 million uh, Syrian civilians, displaced civilians in northwestern Syria. The Turks do not want more Syrian refugees in Turkey. They already have a lot, several million. And therefore, the Turkish army is in northwestern Syria to deter further Syrian government armed attack. If there was some way to settle that problem of the uh, Syrian civilians in northwestern Syria, so that Turkey need not fear a new uh, wave of refugees, then I think the Turks would be willing to discuss uh, a withdrawal over the medium term. At this point, it seems that the Biden administration is pretty intent on leaving a token force in the Kurdish-held areas to guarantee their position in Syria. But what about the administration afterwards? What would the likely Turkish response be if the U.S. do fully evacuate the Kurdish-held parts of Syria? Well, uh, the reason that the Turkish have not gone all out against the Syrian Kurdish forces is the American presence. The Americans are deterring a Turkish attack. The Americans are also deterring further Russian and Syrian incursions into these uh, Syrian Kurdish spaces in northeastern Syria. Um, were the Americans to withdraw, and I don't think that's likely anytime soon, but were the Americans to withdraw, 
I think there would quickly be a discussion between Moscow and Ankara, um, probably bringing in Damascus fairly quickly, about a new security arrangement in northeastern Syria. Turkey's goal would be clear, reestablish Syrian government control, Syrian government sovereignty over northeastern Syria. The Russians would share that goal, um, and of course Damascus would. The question is, can Damascus find the resources, manpower, equipment, supplies, uh, to hold uh, northeastern Syria in the eastern part of the country where there is still uh, some presence of Islamic terrorists, in particular the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. So it's a resource issue from the perspective of Damascus and Moscow. It's a Kurdish issue from the perspective of Turkey. Well, there there will be political flashback, and one of the one of the changes in the American political scene is that there now really is kind of a lobby in uh, Washington with backing from. Uh, different people around the United States, including some very wealthy business people. Um, there's, there's a lobby backing Kurdish independence and, and in American assistance, continued assistance to this uh, Syrian Kurdish militia that's operating in northeastern Syria. But uh, at the same time, um, obviously American strategic, geostrategic attention is shifting more towards the Far East and um, now, with recent developments, more also uh, with respect to Russia. And so uh, the American presence, it's small, it's only about a thousand uh, soldiers, uh, is kind of, that presence is really out of the news and it's off the screen. Were tomorrow or the next day a major incident to happen where seven, eight, ten American soldiers are killed? God forbid, I certainly hope not. But if that were to happen, uh, then I think people would sort of look up and say, wait a minute, what are we doing in eastern Syria and how long are we going to be there? That question is not being asked right now. Um, and so it, the, the, the presence can continue in the absence of any questions or any opposition. I would point out to your listeners that uh, there was a vote in the American House of Representatives last September um, uh, just raising that question and asking the administration, how long are we going to stay? And maybe we need, uh, Congress needs to vote on this. The majority of Democratic Congress people, the majority voted in favor of that uh, resolution. Most Republicans voted against it and enough Democrats voted against it that the resolution failed. But it suggests that the support for an indefinite American presence in Syria is limited. And uh, it behooves, therefore, I think, the Biden administration to be telling the Syrian Kurdish militia and their political colleagues uh, that they need to find an accommodation with Damascus and with Moscow sooner or later, better sooner. And if they go looking to Russia, what would Moscow's position be towards the Kurdish population there? So it's interesting. I think the, the Russians are not against some kind of autonomy for that part of Syria. Um, they've floated that idea several times. Of course, Turkey does not like that idea. But interestingly, neither does Damascus. 
in this particular instance, the interests of the Bashar al-Assad government and those of the Turkish government align quite closely. And probably the Russians would go with the flow um, from Damascus and Ankara on this issue, which is to say that if uh, the Turks and the Syrian government want to repress the autonomous administration, I doubt very much that the Russians are going to go to the mat uh, to defend that autonomous administration that the Kurds have in northeastern Syria. So you were a big part of the Obama administration's Syria strategy, but being such a long war, it's now continued over multiple administrations. How would you characterize the Trump and Biden administration's Syria plans as compared to the Obama administration's? Well, American policy has been in flux since the uh, Syrian revolution started in spring of 2011. The initial American response was there needs to be a negotiation between the government and the opposition to create a transitional government, a kind of national unity government negotiated between the Syrian parties to the conflict. Uh, that failed. The Syrian government, the Bashar al-Assad government, rejected any kind of negotiation. And I want to emphasize to your listeners that the Syrian opposition was willing uh, to negotiate even uh, the terms by which Assad uh, would stay or would leave. They made a formal proposal in writing to the United Nations at the Geneva two discussions in early 2014, saying they would even be willing to negotiate Assad's status. So the Americans, of course, were hoping for a negotiated settlement, but the Syrian government, the Russian government, uh, they were not interested in that. The Obama uh, administration tried uh, intermittently to get that negotiation going, never failed. And once uh, ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria arose, the Obama administration's attention shifted fully to combating that extremist uh, force, which got quite large in Iraq and Syria. By the end of the Obama administration, that was the clear priority. The Trump administration, uh, their policy was, it'd be nice to get rid of Assad, so we'll increase sanctions, we'll try to strangle the regime in Damascus economically, we hope to put pressure on the Iranians too, um, and we'll finish the fight against ISIS. They did recapture all of the territory that ISIS had held, and now ISIS is kind of a, a low-level insurgency in the areas where the Americans still are. But the Trump administration was not able to strangle the regime economically. They inflicted a lot of pain, but they didn't uh, destroy the Assad government, obviously. So now in the Biden administration, they have ratcheted down, they have lowered uh, their policy goals, um, made them, I think, in some ways more realistic, focusing on getting humanitarian aid um, to the uh, internally displaced populations in northern Syria I was talking about, as well as refugees, and uh, also continuing to uh, contain the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, uh, so the American forces stay in eastern Syria. and. Um, Finally, they give lip service without much else um, to efforts to find a political solution. But in the meantime, the Biden administration says, at least let's keep the fighting down. Let's let's try to maintain a, a big reduction that we see on the ground in fighting. 
So what is the American strategy going forward? Should it be to get more involved or should it just be to hand this over to the Russians and the Turks? You know, what is Washington's long-term goals and plans here? Well, I've made that argument uh, that the, the Americans cannot strangle the regime economically because the regime itself doesn't care about the economic welfare of its citizens. Uh, they never did and they still don't. And so uh, you could starve the Syrian population, but Bashar al-Assad wouldn't care and he wouldn't offer any concessions. Um, he wants to stay in power, period. So, and if there was another uprising because of bad economic conditions, the Syrian security services would be just as ruthless in 2022 as they were in 2011 and 2012 and 2013. So there is, there will be no economic strangulation. There'll be pain, but no strangulation. Um, the other big American concern is, as I mentioned, containing ISIS. But I don't think that um, American special forces, I don't think American jet planes, jet bombers, can solve the problem of ISIS, the low-level insurgency it is now. Um, it's a question of uh, recruitment. It's a question of resentment of uh, local Arab communities in eastern Syria towards uh, the Syrian Kurdish militia that is essentially in control of uh, these towns, these Arab towns in eastern Syria. Uh, makes much more sense to me if your goal is to protect the American homeland from ISIS uh, to work out agreements with the Russians and the Turks. The Russians to take over the security responsibilities in eastern Syria and push to keep ISIS contained and with the Turks to ensure that there is no infiltration of ISIS uh, fighters, ISIS personnel from eastern Syria through Turkey to attack targets in Europe or in the United States. That would require a tough negotiation with Turkey, but we have leverage because of our relationship with the uh, Syrian Kurdish militia that I mentioned. So being in the position that you were, you would have likely gamed out many of these scenarios and plans. So I'm a little bit curious. What do you think would have been the likely outcome if there'd been, let's say, a US invasion carried out in the same style as Iraq into Syria when Assad crossed Obama's red line of using chemical weapons on its people? Would we see a stable Syria today or would it have just been another bloody destabilizing situation similar to the American operations in Iraq? Well, I'd, there's no doubt in my mind that the regime in 2013, uh, after that chemical weapons attack was nervous. Um, there were many reports of uh, senior regime officials sending their families to uh, Lebanon. To, they were expecting a pretty stern American response, airstrikes. And um, by not enforcing the red line, by essentially allowing Assad uh, to continue to hold chemical weapons, um, and he used them repeatedly afterwards, as different United Nations investigative committees have shown. Um, I think American credibility suffered. Um, would it have solved the Syrian crisis? Not clear to me that this, Assad was ever going to negotiate away um, his hold on power or that he would even accept uh, to share power as part of a uh, negotiated national unity government. Uh, he would have certainly been on his back foot and perhaps he would have accepted going into a negotiation. But I think experience has also shown us over the past decades uh, that the Syrian government is a very difficult negotiating partner. So 
Uh, it's not clear that enforcing the red line would have fixed the Syrian problem. And let's be honest, the Syrian opposition was in no uh, condition to govern the country. It didn't have experienced administrators of the of the caliber and the number needed. And so, uh, so it would have been a difficult situation no matter what. So what was the main reason that Obama didn't escalate after that incident? Uh, the reason is simple, and I was involved in some of the discussions. Um, and it's not a secret that I and uh, Secretary of State John Kerry were, were strongly in support of uh, striking out against the Syrian government with some sharp, limited airstrikes to uh, get the Assad government to understand it could not use chemical weapons. Um, but the president, President Obama, was not convinced in the end. And the reason he was not convinced is that he was concerned that even if the Americans did strike in hard but limited strikes, Assad might use them again a month later or two months later. And the pressure would have been on the United States to do yet another round of hard uh, airstrikes, maybe not quite so limited, strike harder in order to achieve deterrence. But if the United States failed in that next round of harder airstrikes, if there was still no deterrence and Assad used them again, uh, then there would be yet more pressure on the Americans to strike yet still harder, maybe larger, massive airstrikes. And one would find oneself uh, from the president's position, um, locked into an escalatory spiral where he did not really control it, that Bashar al-Assad would control it. Therefore, when the Russians uh, made an offer to negotiate, uh, I think the Obama administration was very happy to take uh, that route away from the escalatory uh, risk. Of course, what happened is that the Russians promised us, and they did promise us, uh, that if Assad used chemical weapons again, the Russians would accept that the United Nations would take action against Syria, and the Russians repeatedly broke that promise. I mean, looking into the future, is it more likely that Damascus will ever gain full control over Syria again, or we're likely to just see a de facto divided state for the next few decades to come? Well, it's it's divided into three zones now, essentially. Um, the government holds about two-thirds of the country, including all of the major population centers. Um, the uh, Turks hold a large part of northern Syria, and uh, the Americans' uh, military umbrella extends over uh, the eastern part of the country, the, roughly the eastern quarter. Um, I don't think the Americans will stay indefinitely. Um, I, I think there are going to be a lot of demands um, on both military resources as well as budgetary resources in the years ahead. And we should be frank with your listeners, the threat from ISIS uh, to uh, European states and North American targets is much reduced. Um, it's not like it was in 2014 and 2015. The terrorist organization itself is not as capable as it was some years ago. Um, and so I think the Americans will eventually leave, and that part of the country probably will come back under some kind of Syrian government control with Russian backing, probably a lot of Russian backing. Um, the Turkish 
presence in the north, as I said, tied into the issue of the uh, Syrian Kurdish future and the uh, refugee populations or the, the internally displaced populations. Once the Americans leave, the Syrian Kurdish issue will be settled. Uh, that is to say there will be no independent Kurdish entity, which gives the Turks more leeway to uh, then finally focus on the issue of the displaced people and the Turks' desire to keep refugees out. So once that thick, that sticky issue is resolved, I can imagine the Turks might withdraw. The Turks are in an uncomfortable strategic position. They're vulnerable. Um, the Russians have hit the Turks in the past and killed dozens of soldiers in one airstrike. Um, I don't think uh, Ankara wants to be in Syria forever, uh, but they do have interests. And so uh, how to find a way to satisfy Turkish interests, you know, that's going to be, that'll be a trick. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, what changes do you think that the U.S. should have made in the early days of their response to Syria? Well, it was going to be a mess no matter what. Uh, the United States was surprised uh, that Syrians took to the streets in February, March, and April the way they did of 2011. Uh, it was quite a surprise. And uh, the intervention into Syrian affairs by countries like Turkey and Qatar, uh, the Saudis. Uh, that wasn't something that we encouraged. Uh, they wanted to do it on their own, rather like Yemen, if you will. So uh, I think, however, the rhetoric of the Obama administration in terms of sort of um, tough demands that Ashad should step aside, even if we did say Syrians should figure out how to do it, that nuance uh, in the president's words in the Rose Garden in August of 2011, that nuance was lost on Syrians, lost, frankly, on most countries. Um, we needed to ratchet down the rhetoric. Um, I don't think, in retrospect, our assistance to the Syrian opposition was was useful. It was not enough to compel Assad to go to the negotiating table. Not sure we could have ever compelled Assad to go to the negotiating table. But in any case, um, we didn't put that much pressure on him. And uh, so, and we had another problem in that um, the assistance coming in from the outside, especially from Turkey and Qatar, um, helped promote uh, hardline Islamists that actually bolstered domestic support for Assad among uh, minority communities, the Alawi community, the Christian community, um, but also a lot of Sunni Arabs decided that Assad was a better bet than hardline Islamists for their countries. And so uh, the Turkish cuttery gambit with hardline Islamists, I think, really, really caused a problem. And the Americans probably needed to say to the Turks and the Qataris, you either stop that right now or we leave this entirely. Um, we did not make such an ultimatum, and we should have. Syria is entering the next stage of this conflict, where every side is either deciding to try and throw a few last knockout blows and exhaust their reserves, or dig in and maintain the control of what they have already. Transforming the area we once called Syria into becoming four effective de facto zones of control, which much like Afghanistan, means that the international community, both public and private, will be incredibly hesitant to even consider investing any money into the country. Why would you risk an investment 
in a country that is still at war. So who can or will rebuild Syria? Will it be their Russian allies who themselves are in a financial crisis? Their rich Gulf state friends who have been against working with Assad from the beginning? The US who have enough reconstruction on their plates with Iraq or Afghanistan? Or the Turks whose economy is also engulfed in crisis? Is there anyone willing to try and help piece together these shattered remains of Syria? Well, for that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. Picking up the check. The Syrian crisis or the Syrian conflict has been infamously complex, but, you know, we're in our 11th year of the crisis, uh, 11 years since the since the full uprising. Over that 11 years, we've seen a, a, a ferocious conflict that has drawn in regional states, international states, various terrorist actors. Uh, and now, and really since roughly 2019, the, the crisis is largely, can largely be described as being in a state of kind of strategic stalemate. So there isn't one conflict in Syria. There hasn't been one conflict. There have been many, but all of those are largely frozen. They're still bubbling away. There's certainly still conflict in all of those different uh, theaters across Syria. Um, but the lines, the conflict lines have frozen. Uh, the regime on for its part with Russian and Iranian backing now control the majority of Syria, about 68% of the country, and that includes most of the populated cities along the kind of western spine of Syria. Um, but roughly a third of the country is still controlled by uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, which were the United States and the International Coalition's main partner in the fight against ISIS. Um, there's still a substantial corner of the country in the northwest, which is controlled by a wide variety of opposition and uh, jihadist groups with the tacit backing and, and, and in some ways the direct backing of, of Turkey. And still the southwest of the country remains um, quite restless, officially controlled by the regime, but largely still uh, only tangentially in the regime's actual uh, control. So the, the situation remains very fluid, very dynamic. The crisis or the crises are far from over, um, but unquestionably it looks like a very different crisis than it did four or five years ago. Charles Lister is a senior fellow and director of the Syria and Countering Terrorism Program at the Middle East Institute. He's also a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute in Qatar and a senior consultant to the multinationally backed Syria Track 2 Dialogue Initiative, in which he managed nearly three years of intensive face-to-face -face engagement with the leaderships of over 100 Syrian armed opposition groups. We're happy to have Charles on the program today. And the regime has been saying from the very get-go that it will... Uh, recontrol every inch of Syrian territory. That is its declared goal. I think it remains its ambition, unquestionably. Um, but I think a lot of that, in terms of you know its capacity to do so, I think increasingly depends on whether or not its core two foreign backers, Russia and Iran, and particularly Russia, are willing to allow it to try to do so. It certainly by itself is incapable of doing it. It will need at minimum Russian backing, if not Russian and Iranian backing, to, to do that. Um, we're increasingly hearing indications, both behind the scenes and in public, particularly from Moscow, that the era of sort of major hostilities in Syria is over. So from a conflict standpoint, of course, that's encouraging because it has been the Russians that have really driven the regime uh, and its attempt to retake the country in a very, 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 very violent way. 
um, over the last years. So um, it wants to. Ultimately, one day it may uh, be more realistic to see them take it through some kind of big diplomatic arrangement, whether that be with Turkey in the northwest or with the United States and the Syrian Democratic Forces in the Northeast. But if it's going to take them by force, at this stage in time, I would be very surprised if it took it by force, um, in large part because I think most international actors are either fatigued by the Syrian crisis, um, at home their domestic uh, sort of voting bases do not want to see us kind of re-engaged aggressively in the Syrian crisis, um, but also uh, on a very practical level, seeing hostilities resume would almost certainly result in, in a potentially far greater uh, and far more dangerous level of geopolitical conflict, uh, unlike uh, the likes of what we've seen before. And there was an indication of that we had in, uh, in March uh, 2019, when the regime did try to retake uh, to retake northwestern Syria and launched a major offensive in Idlib. And it, the result of that was an unprecedented um, military campaign, campaign by the Turkish military against the Syrian regime. Really the first example we've seen in the entirety of the conflict whereby a foreign state militarily and directly confronted the Syrian regime. And in the space of six days, uh, in doing so, it forced uh, the regime and Russia uh, to pivot 180 degrees from insisting on a military solution to the northwest to essentially demanding ceasefire talks. Um, and I think that that really drew a red line in the conflict writ large or in the crisis writ large, whereby for the first time the regime was sensitive and responsive to being militarily pushed back against. It was the first time, as I say, that it had happened and it did have a very clear effect. And ever since then, we've not seen the regime push on any front militarily in a significant way. And why is Russia so involved in the Syrian conflict? Surely all of the blood and treasure Russia has spent in Syria is worth more than just the port they get in Tartus. I think, I think at the highest level, Russia had st sat back and watched the United States ever since post 9-11, post uh, you know, invade, um, invade Afghanistan, invade Iraq, invade Libya, and throughout all of those interventionist um, policies, the Russian position, Chinese and, and other sort of uh, similarly aligned states, um, the Russian position was that the United States was, you know, violating international law, it was intervening, not just for its own self-purpose, but it was that it was destabilizing the world, but it was also doing so in order to create uh, or expand American influence in, in, in sensitive areas of the world. And I think, especially post-Libya, where the Russians pushed very hard to try to prevent um, American and European intervention, Syria was seen as, uh, as a particularly sensitive red line for the Russians, in part because the Russians actually have a historical relationship with the Assad regime, both with Hafez al-Assad, the father of, uh, of, of Bashar, um, and with Bashar himself. The Russian military particularly has all been very, very close with the Syrian regime's military. Uh, and similarly, I think Putin also saw Russia as uh, a kind of revived um, great power uh, with a very minimal footprint in the Middle East, very minimal influence, very minimal presence. Uh, and clearly, with its historical relationships and historical ties, Syria was a prime opportunity for Russia not just to push back against that sort of tradition 
of Western interventionism in the region, also to uh, humiliate uh, and defeat the United States and its European allies and their interventionist policies, and to kind of re-establish Russia as a significant player in doing so, and uh, as a kind of added bonus to establish more of a solid military presence on, on, on Middle Eastern soil, on the Mediterranean with a naval base, um, but also through which, through the intervention, um, proving that the Russian military was kind of back, uh, it was a capable military player again, um, and to demonstrate that to actors in the Middle East who simultaneously were growing increasingly frustrated, not at an interventionist America necessarily, but actually, in an ironic sort of way, with an America that many uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, many countries in the Middle East perceived to be actually withdrawing from the region, not physically withdrawing, but kind of emotionally and politically withdrawing interest uh, from the region. And I think uh, all of that kind of created a perfect ingredient, a pot of ingredients, not just for Russian intervention to save the regime from defeat, um, but for a greater, a much greater strategic purpose. And I think, frankly, we've seen a lot of that realized, uh, even though the Obama administration said very early on that the Russian intervention would swiftly turn into a quagmire. Um, yes, the Russians find themselves owning a very troublesome and intractable problem, Syria, uh, but at the same time, they've won a great deal out of the intervention. The regime has been saved. Uh, Russia's place on the international stage is unquestionably at a greater, higher point today than it was uh, five or ten years ago. Uh, the Middle East has unquestionably become increasingly frustrated and disenchanted with American policy or certain aspects of American policy in the re region. Um, and, and Russia is taking advantage of that. And as some Russian analysts would, would tell us, uh, the base in uh, Hameimim on the, on the Syrian coast or with the Mediterranean uh, is now being used as a kind of pivot point or a launching point for Russian official and unofficial uh, sort of operations and campaigns in Africa. So it has un undoubtedly uh, transformed Russia's strategic position in the region from an almost non-player to at least a player on the stage. No real competition to the United States if we really wanted to stand fast against against Moscow, um, but uh, but certainly a player to take notice of. And how impressive is the Russian naval base at Tartus? How would it compare to something like Sevastopol? Well, at the moment, it's 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 not it's not necessarily all that strategically significant. Yes, it can be a stopping off point. Certainly, it can serve as a way to 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 bring resources and logistics into Syria. But it, it, I think we're still a long way away from it being a kind of um, a sort of strategic an area or a base or a facility of real strategic importance. But I think that that Tartus is is, is remains more, in my opinion, at least. Uh, symbolic than than strategic, but the airbase in Hameimim is 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 really significant. Um, we've also seen, just as a sort of intriguing tangent, um, uh, a couple uh, Israeli um, airstrikes on the Latakia port, a commercial port used by the regime for mostly for commercial purposes, but also by the Iranians, um, uh, allegedly at least, to bring in strategic weapon systems into Syria and potentially then to funnel them to other actors in the region. And interestingly, not just have we seen Israeli strikes on this 
technically on paper commercial port. But we've also seen since those strikes a Russian military reaction, which has included bringing uh, Russian troops into that commercial port to protect it, to patrol it, to um, uh, make a statement uh, to to the Israelis. And that's a whole other kind of intriguing relationship. Well, if the Israelis are bombing the port and the Russians have been patrolling it, what would Moscow's response likely be if Israel was to bomb and kill some Russian soldiers patrolling the area? Oh, I think there'd be uh, I think there'd be a big problem. Um, but at the same time, I think I think the Russians are are, are and can be um, quite careful and measured in their responses. Um, they have been absolutely brutal and frankly criminal in their military campaign against the opposition and their enormous civilian communities in Syria. But when it comes to the broader sort of geopolitical, either competition or hostilities, whether it be with the United States or with Israel or with others or with Turkey, um, the Russians have played it quite careful. So whilst many politicians on both sides of the aisle in the United States have frequently used um, their anti-intervention or anti-being involved in Syria stance um, as a reason to say back in the day in 2014-15, what do you want? World War II with Russia. Um, whereas that line has and was quite common, uh, has been quite common, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and Syria. In reality, the Russians have actually shown, I think, quite a measured approach to their competition, rivalry, or even hostility with, with rival governments in the regional or, or more broadly. Um, they've unquestionably still favoured deconfliction with the United States. And in this case with Israel, um, they have very clearly invested diplomatically and militarily in deconfliction practices with the Israelis. Um, the port strikes uh, uh, in the last couple of months, though, have certainly challenged that dynamic. Uh, they've definitely appear, they definitely appear to have encouraged the Russians to be much more forthright in pushing back against the Israelis, not militarily in a direct sort of way, not challenging the Israelis militarily, but certainly in pushing back. And there have been in uh, the Israeli media uh, reports indirectly from from the Israeli military. Um, and when the Israeli military leak things to the media, you know that it's generally on an issue that they take very seriously. Um, that since those port strikes, the, the Russian military has um, either installed or increasingly used uh, sort of electronic jamming um, and spoofing uh, technology along the Mediterranean coast not just to interfere with potential Israeli military strikes on targets like the port in Latakia, um, but as a sort of side effect, that, that technology, that military equipment has been uh, interfering in a very dangerous way with civilian commercial air traffic uh, all across the Middle East, but from the Israeli perspective, to traffic landing into, uh, into Tel Aviv airport. So there is also a much broader element here. I mean, we are talking about a delicate, delicately managed uh, sort of geopolitical conflict and rivalry at the, in the heart of the Middle East, which has the prospects to become a much more dangerous in a direct way. But the indirect effects are also, um, you know, not to be uh, underappreciated. Well, a nation we haven't spoken about a lot in this piece yet is Iran, who has a big role to play in Syria. 
So what are Iran's strategic aims when it comes to the Syrian conflict? Well, for Iran, um, Syria was kind of the jewel in the crown of its regional strategy. Um, you know, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, as a revolutionary state has been very clear for a very long time about its regional agenda. And that was uh, to establish uh, a zone of influence spreading from Iran to the Mediterranean in order explicitly to challenge the state of Israel um, and to push back against the United States uh, and its allies. And quite frankly, you know, pre pre 2011, before the Syrian crisis really erupted, Syria was of real strategic importance to the Iranians. It was the primary thoroughfare through which uh, Iran provided uh, weapons and other sources of support to Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, its key regional strategic ally, uh, but also to Palestinian actors. So it was already of, of importance. But when uh, conflicts uh, erupted in Syria from 2011 onwards, that posed an existential threat, not just to Iran's ability to use Syria as a as a sort of transit point for its broader strategic purposes, um, but 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 in so doing, it would have potentially the loss of Syria would have crippled Iran's entire regional strategy and regional presence and influence. And so, you know, Iran was the first external state to directly intervene in Syria, not with overt troops battling on the front line. Um, but the first step we saw from Iran was to deploy uh, sort of um, intelligence uh, personnel who brought with them sort of electronic uh, surveillance equipment, which the Syrian regime was was not as well uh, equipped uh, with, uh, to, to surveil and to intercept the electronic communications of the peaceful protest uprising, which of course mostly was being coordinated on social media platforms like Facebook, and that was the first Iranian intervention. It later turned military um, with the IRGC deploying first in a kind of advise and equip, uh, uh, advise and assist um, uh, campaign, and then later actually directly militarily on the ground alongside Hezbollah. But yeah, for, I mean, the short answer is Syria is of existential value to to Iran and its regional agenda. It has and was and will continue to be so. Um, and Iran's role in protecting, defending the Syrian regime has been very, very significant. I think a lot of attention, rightly, is given to the Russian role, and particularly in that sense to the Russian air uh, intervention, which clear, undoubtedly has had a significant impact on the regime's abilities on the ground. But what's, I think, underappreciated these days is the scale and significance of Iran's intervention, which was a ground intervention. Um, as I said, initially first in small numbers from the IRGC itself and from Hezbollah, but later in enormous numbers in the form of Shia militias, uh, Syrian uh, established Shia militias, Iraqi, uh, Lebanese, and then later uh, Afghan and Pakistani Shia uh, militias, uh, the Fatimiyun and the Zainabiyun brigades. Um, and we're talking tens of thousands um, of, of men at arms on the ground. And it was those sheer numbers that unquestionably had a real strategic uh, impact on the regime's ability initially to defend and to hold the line. And then in latter years, when post Russia's intervention, to begin to retake territory on the ground. Um, and without that, uh, the regime would, would almost certainly um, have either lost earlier on 
or the Russians would have had to intervene directly uh, much earlier than in September 2015. And what do you think the US should be doing in Syria going forward? Should it be getting more or less involved with the country? Well, it, it, frankly, it's hard to see us getting more involved, both uh, due to you know, sit, the situation and dynamics inside Syria, but also there's just no political appetite at home, no political appetite at all to get more involved than we already are. And we're not that involved, frankly. Our primary involvement is in the counter-ISIS fight, uh, which is, uh, you know, as we've seen in the last few weeks, very much a, a fight that is ongoing um, and ought to be ongoing. Um, there's a diplomatic angle to it. Years ago, UN Security Council Resolution 2254 was was agreed, um, and that essentially mandates the international community to move diplomatically towards uh, a, a, an extent of meaningful change, not regime change, but meaningful change inside Syria, a move towards justice and accountability, um, and, uh, and a, a, an overall political settlement uh, to the crisis. So we are mandated officially to continue to move in that direction. But to be honest, especially in the last uh, year or so under the Biden administration, it's very hard to see that the United States, let alone European countries, are really actually actively moving in that direction. It remains a principle that we will continue to hear um, spelled out within every political and diplomatic statement coming from a Western capital. But in terms of actual action moving in that direction, it's, it's quite hard, frankly, to see um, anyone, anyone doing that. Do you think Beijing has any interest in getting involved in the rebuilding of Syria? Well, I think, I mean, first off, the, the scale of the rebuilding, uh, the reconstruction uh, challenge is just enormous. I mean, it's beyond any individual country. Um, and even when you look at, even if even if there was a, the, the money to accomplish the reconstruction of Syria, you know, World Bank studies have shown that even if there was the money, Syria itself lacks anywhere near the infrastructure to actually even just to facilitate the reconstruction of Syria. None of their ports are big enough. None of their roads are equipped to carry the scale of equipment. Um, there are no, there are you know, no way near the amount of trucks to even move equipment and resources around the country to reconstruct. Um, there are, isn't the manpower uh, to to accomplish those goals. They'd have to bring in external manpower to do the construction. So, you know, it, the the outlook in terms of reconstruction is dire, and that's just when you look at the kind of practical elements. When you talk uh, about uh, countries or governments or international bodies that could uh, cough up the money, there is a political interest amongst some countries like Russia, Iran, maybe China, um, perhaps the UAE now, um, to see reconstruction, a meaningful reconstruction begin. But then when you look into, when you dig into or when you dig below statements, you know, sort of rhetorical statements we've seen from some of those governments about reconstruction. And some of those statements include memorandum of understanding, you know, $300 million there to build so and so or, you know, a, a deal to uh, reconstruct residential buildings in this town or this city. When you dig below those statements, barely a dollar has changed hands. Now, part of the reason for that is 
that there is a very significant and aggressive set of American sanctions called the Caesar Act, which would target any entity, an individual, a government or a business uh, entity from engaging in any meaningful financial transaction with the Syrian regime. And that, of course, is a significant deterrent. But beyond that, um, there is also the very practical reality of the fact that Syria looks like a, essentially an uninvestable business prospect for any sensible actor out there, Let a, you know, notwithstanding how them maybe having a political interest in investing in the Syrian regime. Uh, I think the Chinese would look uh, in a million other directions before thinking about sinking their money into Syria, where no matter what happens, or if nothing happens diplomatically, the economic and social outlook for Syria is dire. It's terrible. Um, and if there's one thing we know about China's sort of strategy for, you know, foreign direct investment in in uh, in in, um, in in countries around the world, it is that they do do so when there is at least a minimized amount of risk in doing so. Yes, of course, they want to in debt. Uh, foreign countries in order to essentially own them or at least have overwhelming influence over those governments. But they also want their investment to be realized in something, in some way. Um, and I just don't think that Syria looks like uh, a, a realistic and a safe investment prospect by any means um, at the moment, which is why I think most of the discussion about reconstruction and uh, financial deals and reconstruction deals has largely been symbolic until this point. And what do you see in the future of Syria over the next decade or so? We are now on a path uh, which I would find it hard to believe will be blocked off, in which parts or large parts of the Middle East will continue to or will begin to re-engage with the regime. That is largely, from a regional perspective, a sort of pragmatic acceptance of the fact that Bashar al-Assad isn't going away anywhere. And therefore, uh, therefore, the kind of normalizing of the regime, I think, will, will continue, albeit slowly. Now, does that normalizing of the regime, which is largely a symbolic effect, then equate to or, or, or bring real significant political and financial investment in Syria that transforms the regime from being a kind of crippled, corrupt international pariah into something a little bit more meaningful, that is where I would still be deeply sceptical. And so unfortunately, I think that if the current path that we're on continues, Syria, Syria will remain an international pariah, albeit one that talks and engages more with actors in the region. It will continue to preside over a crippled economy um, and it will continue to face, I think, one and possibly two um, foreign sort of occupations of Syrian soil. I don't think Turkish troops are going anywhere anytime soon from the northwest. Uh, I would be frankly amazed if the Turks ever agreed uh, to leave under current conditions. Um, and for now, at least, U.S. troops and the U.S. government is has been quite clear that we're not leaving either because we don't trust any other actors to sufficiently take care of the ISIS challenge in the Northeast. And so as a result of all of those things, the Syrian regime will 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 continue to be 
uh, paranoid, deeply, deeply corrupt, um, and oppressive towards any, uh, you know, signs of, of protest or opposition within the country, there will always be the prospect of significant instability and potentially conflict within regime controlled areas, as we're seeing right now with a persistent insurgency in the southwest of the country. And the southwest was meant to be the sort of ideal realization of what the Russians and the regime call reconciliation. And in fact, it was the most unstable area of Syria last year. So that will uh, that will continue and potentially be replicated in, in other parts of the country. Um, I realize I have to mention ISIS here as well, given the recent events in the last few weeks. Um, ISIS has uh, ISIS has sustained a very slow, very slow, but I think a methodical uh, strategy of recovery, not resurgence. I think that would be too much, uh, too, too much to say, but of recovery since the defeat of its territorial caliphate just about three years ago. Um, this strategy of recovery is a strategy that ISIS's predecessor in Iraq has conducted very effectively itself before. Uh, it doesn't mean that we are on a on a path towards uh, an absolute explosion of ISIS like we saw in 2014. That was the result, I think, of a perfect pot of ingredients for for ISIS to take advantage of. But it does unquestionably mean that ISIS remains a significant security challenge in Syria. And I'm pretty convinced it means that it will become even more of a security challenge in the, in the, in the next few years ahead. The prison attack that it launched three weeks ago in, uh, in northeastern Syria was a really significant development. We pivoted from seeing, you know, day-to-day -day very minor ISIS attacks, an IED attack here, a, a sort of drive-by shooting there, the occasional raid, um, but nothing particularly uh, significant in terms of a scale, to suddenly two to three hundred ISIS fighters, most of them wearing suicide belts, uh, infiltrating a heavily guarded city and attacking the biggest um, detention facility for ISIS militants anywhere in the world, um, almost unchallenged with three suicide truck bombs. Now, that is a major uh, escalation in terms of ISIS's uh, capabilities and its demonstration of its capabilities. And even though we may have successfully killed ISIS's leader just a few days ago um, on Syrian soil, uh, if there's anything we've learned about how ISIS and its predecessors have operated when they don't control territory, it's that, yes, leaders are important, but they are not uh, the be-all and end-all. They are not determinative of uh, uh, the ability of an insurgency to sustain itself. And that, I think, you know, has to remain a, a significant source of concern, not just for the region, but for the world at large. Problem gamblers stay at the table far too long, making bet after bet, hoping that the next hand is the one that gets them out of trouble. Inevitably though, the gambler usually walks away with a lighter pocket than when he entered, and the odds were never in his favour. The US is sitting at that table now, pondering whether to throw another round of money down, knowing the odds are increasingly stacked against them, or simply grab their chips and walk out of the room. Do they simply bite the bullet? and announce an acceptance and support of Assad taking over control of Syria, backflipping on years of calling him a dictator that should face trial. Knowing that by doing that, they'll have to sit in organizations like the UN 
and once again shake his hand as a fellow nation state? Or do they keep the conflict going, where the country remains broken and international business will continue to avoid the country like a plague? The Kurds have been there for the US for decades now, and this is an incredibly complicating factor to this decision, and it would be politically disastrous to betray them, betraying the last true friend of the US in the region. But can the US commit to staying there for decades to prevent this? And with foreign policy now changing dramatically from White House to White House, will the next administration guarantee the Kurdish survival? The longer this war keeps going as well, the more misery and instability will develop in the country, providing fertile ground for the next ISIS. It is in the interest of the US to try and bring this war to a close, but by doing so will be a big win for Assad, Moscow and Iran, not really a group the US is seeking to help. As we said in the beginning, there's no good choices, no bad choices, just A and B, and the consequences that come with both. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. We've wanted to do a serial piece for a long time now, but it's taken so long to pull together the right people and the right research to be able to confidently try and sort some sort of a logical analysis of the situation. This year for the show is already off to another big start, and we're even busier than we've ever been with extra analysis, a special mini-series coming up, more content on our website, and much, much more. So if you want to find out more about that, you can visit our website, theredlinepodcast.com. Or you can follow everything we're up to on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElitoz. Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to a friend of the show, Alison Trenchina, who's the latest patron to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Alison, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep the show going. And we cannot thank these people enough. So if you feel you can spare a couple of dollars, we'd really greatly appreciate it. So Alison, this episode on Syria is dedicated to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations for this episode. The first is The Battle for Syria by Christopher Phillips for a look at the international competition in the country. The second is Assad or We Burn the Country for a deeper look at the leader's rule itself. And the third is Destroying a Nation by Nicholas Van Dam for a more personal look at the stories in the country. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Joshua Landis, Doug Bandow, Robert Ford, and Charles Lister. All of you were fantastic to have on the program, and we look forward to having you back soon. I also want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zavella, head research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn and Robert Sutton, our new production assistants. I'm incredibly proud of this team, as well as the new additions we'll hopefully be announcing next week. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit the Redline Podcast dot com.